the Christian Circle podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. Uh, my name is Charles Johnston and I am a uh, contractor in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a convert to Catholicism from Evangelical Protestantism and I've been Catholic for uh, a few years now officially for over a decade I guess kind of in my heart, <laughs> but uh, a few years I've been in the church since being received at Easter Vigil in uh, 2016, just a couple of years now, and I have a, uh, a blog that I write at nowthatimcatholic.com and also a Facebook page, just trying to share the truth, beauty, and goodness of Catholicism. So I'm sure um, this saint that we're discussing today was part of your um, RCIA as well. So, Actually, no, we didn't really cover him in RCIA. Really? Yeah. The uh, when I because I just got done doing RCIA this year as a sponsor, mm-hmm. but uh, when I went through the curriculum was different than this. This year the curriculum was uh, uh, Father Paul Scalia's book uh, that nothing might be lost. Mm-hmm. That was great. Okay. We read that a chapter each day, and then also a book by Father John Ricardo called Heaven Starts Now. Okay. And uh, and then the compendium for the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and so they'd read a few. So every week we met on Sundays after Mass. So every week was a few paragraphs of the Catechism, and either a chapter of Father Scalia or Father Ricardo's book, mm-hmm. and then we'd discuss it afterwards and all that. But when I went through RCIA, we used a thing called the U.S. Catechism for Adults, okay. and it was a thick red book, and it. Uh, each chapter was kind of on a different topic and stuff, and each chapter started with the story of a saint. Okay. And so we'd read that, and then when we'd done the class, it was, because the class was like two hours after Mass, mm-hmm. so the first hour would be someone giving a presentation, it was usually on that saint or on the topic or whatever, mm-hmm. but all the saints in the book were American saints. Okay. okay. So they were all either American saints or uh, blessed, you know, mm-hmm. or people that like, kind of on their way, like uh, Fulton Sheen mm-hmm. and uh, people like that. Mm-hmm. And so we really never, uh, and there was some European saints in there too, but it was mostly American saints because the book was called U.S. Catechism for Adults. Mm-hmm. So we really didn't cover uh, Thomas Aquinas okay. in in RCI at all. But And, you know, to our loss, because I think he, he's one of my favorites of all time. Yeah. <laughs> he's just great. We've heard that a number of times from you, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but Aquinas, I spend more time reading Aquinas than probably anyone else, maybe St. Paul, because I read the Bible a lot, you know, so apart from St. Paul, I think Aquinas is the one I've read most of, and I don't think there's been a saint, there's been a lot of saints that we've covered that have, like, given us great moral... You know, lessons we've learned from like St. Augustine, mm-hmm. a great moral lesson or, or uh, mm-hmm. so, I mean, we've, we've covered all these different moral examples and stuff, but I don't think anyone has contributed more to the, the theological and philosophical development of the church mm-hmm. as Thomas Aquinas. He really is preeminent. And he's been preeminent as a child, right? I mean, it was foretold about him that he would be somebody who would do great things for the church. He was born in uh, southern Italy, and he was, uh, I think, he might have been the fifth, either fourth or fifth child. And his uncle, his father was a a wealthy enough man, and he was born in a castle. So, I mean, that tells you something about where they stood in life. 
and his father was a wealthy enough man, and his uncle was the abbot of the local uh, Benedictine monastery. Mm-hmm. And so, all his older brothers had all went into Aquinas. Thomas's Aquinas's older brothers had all went into military military service mm-hmm. for the king of Sicily. And so, the kind of the common thing back then, especially, you know, you'd have ten kids, you know, five or six of them will be sons. So the youngest son would usually become a monk, and and he would. Because they were from a wealthy family, they figured he would become the abbot of the monastery, and that would it kind of brought a little bit of prestige to it. You know, it was more prestigious than being just a common priest. You know, it was kind of like a career move. And not that there wasn't well-meaning priests and everything, but the family seen that as a way to for for their child to be taken care of and also move up in life and mm-hmm. do things. And Aquinas, he kind of had different ideas, very bullheaded. And so he had a different idea of how his path in life would go. And while studying, I believe it was either in Rome or in Naples, I can't remember, he come across Dominicans. And the Dominicans had just recently been formed. They'd only been around for maybe 10 or 15 years. And they were a mendicant order, like the Franciscans. The Dominicans and the Franciscans are a mendicant order. So they go around, and their charism is to, to be amongst the people and they kind of survive off of like donations, basically. Whereas an abbot in a monastery would have lands that they would farm and they would sell things. And they kind of like worked for the, you know what I mean? They had kind of an income, and they had, especially you know, in Western Europe and in England, you know, the the monasteries had these vast lands that they would rent out to farmers and stuff, and they would make taxes off it. So they kind of had more of a income. Whereas the Dominicans and the Franciscans basically were preaching beggars. And Thomas was really attracted to the spirituality that they had mm-hmm. of the Dominicans, of preaching the gospel in the streets, basically. And so he decides that he wants to become a Dominican. Mm-hmm. So they arrange for him to be transported from his home to Rome and then from Rome on to Paris to become a Dominican. And his father actually has him kidnapped mm-hmm. so that he could force him to be a Benedictine monk. Not that there's anything wrong with Benedictine monks, but that isn't what Thomas wanted. Yeah. And like I said, Thomas was very bullheaded, so he he was going to get what he wanted. And he felt like this was really his calling in life, was to be a Dominican friar. So his father imprisoned him, and he ended up spending over a year in a cell in the family castle. Because he wouldn't relent. He wouldn't give in. But in this time, he spent teaching his sisters and also writing letters back and forth with the Dominican, the the head of the Dominican order. Mm -hmm. And eventually... His mother arranged for him to escape out the window because she figured it would be better for him to escape and they could act like, oh no, he got away, rather than give in to their son. And so eventually he escaped and ran off to join the Dominicans. How does this shape his uh, theology and philosophy and his ministry? I mean, how does he go on to become such a big thinker and writer? Yeah, he was just constantly thinking things over, kind of mulling things over. And uh, there's a story... I actually read a book by uh, G.K. Chesterton, wrote a biography of Thomas Aquinas that I read a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told a story about how Aquinas was at, like, either a duke or it was like a high enough noble mm-hmm. banquet. And he's sitting down at the end of the table, and all of a sudden he slammed his fist down on the table and said, that'll fix the Manichaeans. You know, like, where he come up with a solution to a problem that he'd been mulling over in his head. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of a banquet at a party, and everyone just kind of turned and looked at them like, oh, okay, it's just him again. You know, because he was constantly, that's what he was doing. The gears in his mind were always turning. He was always thinking of different 
ways of seeing things, different, you know, the different manners of philosophy and different problems. He was coming up with solutions to problems at all times. So he was constantly, and that's one of the charisms of the Dominicans is to preach, to bless and to study. That's their, so that is their thing is they study, they learn and they share it with others. What is one of, uh, or I know there are plenty of things to discuss about his theology, but what was at the forefront of his his preaching and his his philosophy, basically? So much. Of <laughs> he wrote, he wrote uh, kind of the manual of Catholic theology, mm-hmm. basically the Summa Theologica or Summa Theologiae, mm-hmm. depends on how you want to say it. But it's like the. Uh, he wrote it in mind, really, to beginning philosophy, uh, beginning theology students. Mm-hmm. So people that would kind of, you could read it, and this is, was your introduction to, and that's how Tom, that's how high working his mind was, that the Summa Theologica was his idea of, you know, uh, Theology 101. Mm-hmm. When me, meanwhile, it's pretty, it's some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. You know? And uh, so I don't know, I don't know who in the world would just jump right into that right off the bat, you know, but that was his idea was he was writing it for people who had never studied uh, philosophy, theology before. So he's writing a book, a beginner's manual of theology. And eventually it came to be held in such high esteem that during the council of Trent, it was one of the three documents, you know, the Bible, there was a, a document of papal decrees and the Summa Theologica was laid on the altar during the council of Trent during their sessions. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's how high of a, a regard that the church holds it. Mm-hmm. And what he taught in it isn't infallible because only the Pope has a charism of infallibility. Yeah. But it is, it's pretty much standard Catholic doctrine is contained in the, mm-hmm. the Summa. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he also wrote, uh, he wrote the Summa Contra Gentiles, which was uh, kind of like his defense, more of a work of apologetics. So it was more of a defense of Christianity Against it was really written towards Muslims and Jews, yeah. so it was kind of defending the Trinity. It was defending the Incarnation yeah. and all these different things. So it was more of his apologetics work, yeah. and the uh, Summa was more for people who were already Christians to learn more about theology. Yeah. Now that was, I'd say, those are his two greatest works. But you know, he done a lot of other stuff too. He wrote a lot of documents. A lot of mm-hmm. he wrote. Uh, the mass for he was actually in Orvieto, Italy, when uh, Pope Urban—I want to say the fourth, might have been the fifth—was in Orvieto when the priest brought the corpus, you know, the cloth that's underneath the uh, when they're uh, underneath the patent when they're celebrating mass mm-hmm. that had blood on it. The mm-hmm. priest brought it to the Pope, who was in Orvieto, that was where his su- summer residence was, and the Pope had uh, Thomas write a mass, like a full musical composition and everything for this new feast, which will become Corpus Christi that we just celebrated yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And it was this mass that he wrote is where we get the uh, Pangelingua, the song that we sing during benediction, during Eucharistic adoration. That was written by Thomas Aquinas. Okay. So that's one of his most enduring works, too. If you had to break down some of his writing to mm-hmm. everyday people, to everyday Christians, so that they could apply to their life. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that he talks about faith versus reason and all those things. What are the things that you could you could say to everyday Christians about his his work or his advice? I think uh, Aquinas, because Aquinas was kind of mentored and tutored by uh, Albert the Great, 
you know, and Albert the Great was kind of like scientist, you know, but it was, we look at it nowadays and see it was a lot of it was kind of more alchemy than science, mm-hmm. but he was into the physical sciences and the, uh, you know, natural sciences and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so Aquinas was tutored by him. So Aquinas is one of his main, I'd say his main thesis would be that faith and reason don't have to conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, this would be picked up later on by John Paul II when he wrote Fragio uh, at Fides, Faith and Reason, that faith and reason don't have to conflict. And in fact, you know, one of the most famous things that Thomas Aquinas ever wrote is in the Prima Pars, the first part of the Summa, mm-hmm. is the Quinque Vie, the Five Ways. Yeah. And it's the five ways to prove the existence of God. And he proves it, not that it's proven like beyond a shadow of a doubt, but he gives these proofs mm-hmm. from natural, the, you know, the light of human reason. Yeah. So a person can see, using reason, mm-hmm. that God exists. You know, so I think that's a big, because a lot of, especially in today's world, people say, oh, you know, faith, that's superstition. You believe yeah. in superstition. And it's, I think if you really, if you learn the quinque vie, if you learn the five ways, mm-hmm. if you really study them, you can defend your faith, yeah. you know, especially even like to an atheist that wants to attack it, mm-hmm. because it's not unreasonable. Faith isn't, faith, sure, faith is at the end. Thomas only proves that a God exists, not that it's the God of the Bible, but, you know, not, who was it, Kant, that said, you know, the tea kettle, it could be a tea kettle in the sky, mm-hmm. you know, or you, you see sometimes the flying spaghetti monster, people making fun of it, you know, because mm-hmm. we know that there's a God, but it could be the flying spaghetti monster, not the God from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, Aquinas only proves that a God exists. He doesn't prove that it's the God that we believe in, but then that's where you have to, faith comes into play. You know, Jesus was son of God, the incarnation. There's certain things that are only known to us because they've been revealed to us by God. The Trinity is something that we would have never come to know about except for divine revelation. But the existence of God itself is perfectly reasonable. And it goes hand in hand with, you know, faith and science aren't enemies. They're actually allies in this quest. You know, and a lot of people miss that point. A lot of people either reject science outright and say, no, I believe in God and I reject science, or they say, I believe in science and they reject God. And in that case, they've made science a religion. The Big Bang itself, the Big Bang was uh, Father George Lemaitre, who was a Belgian priest. I think it was Belgian, might have been Dutch. A Belgian priest in the 1920s or 30s. He came up and he called it the cosmic egg, you know, the singularity that, you know, the theory of the Big Bang. And it was called the Big Bang by his detractors. So they were kind of, they were trying to tear him down with that calling it the Big Bang. And he proved that through using, you know, current science of the day, and even it's been expanded on by like Edwin Hubble and everything, that the universe is expanding. And if you rewind it all the way back to a single point, there's a single singularity that the entire space and time existent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, to say that something in Thomas would say, you know, the first cause, that there has to be a cause outside of that that caused that to happen because nothing can cause itself. Mm-hmm. That's his first proof of the existence of God is the, the unmoved mover. And the oh. second one is the first cause. If you, Even just using the Big Bang, which is the accepted model of how the universe came into existence. You know, there's really not, I don't really, I haven't found too many people that to dispute the Big Bang. Yeah. But, and too many serious, I mean, there's flat earthers out there, so I guess there's someone that'll dispute anything. But I haven't met too many serious people 
that dispute the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, there was something outside of the singularity, something outside of space and time, something infinite, mm-hmm. something un, you know, something necessary, not contingent, mm-hmm. and that caused it, that moved it, that was necessary, that wasn't contingent, and those things we call God. I mean, that's basic Thomistic theology, right? Other than the first proof, can you go through all of the proofs that uh, he, he actually stipulated? So the first one is the unmoved mover. You know, he says that things exist, they're in motion, mm-hmm. and something that's in motion can't set itself in motion. It has to be set in motion by something else. It didn't really mean motion either, like we think of motion as movement back and forth. He meant motion, movement from potentiality to actuality. Mm-hmm. So in philosophy, you know, there's potentiality and actuality. So there's something can be potentially hot, yeah. like wood. It could potentially be on fire. And then actually hot if it's on fire, but it can't be potentially and actually at the same time. Something has to move it from one to the other. Yeah. And it can't, he, he argued that something called an infinite regress is impossible. It's a logical fallacy that to say that this action went back in time for infinity. Like if you've seen dominoes falling and you said, well, where's the first domino? Well, there is no first domino. It just goes back in infinity. Well, that's nonsense. Yeah. We. We know there had to be a first domino to set everything, so that's an infinite regress. So he says that something can't move itself from potentiality to actuality. It has to be moved by something else outside of itself, something greater than it. Mm-hmm. And that can't go back forever, so there has to be a first mover that is itself unmoved. So something that causes things, you know, a first mover that makes things move from potentiality to actuality, and that mover we call God. Then his second one was the uh, first cause. And the first cause was that, you know, everything, nothing exists, wasn't caused to exist by something else. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to the first mover, yeah. but it's that something can't contain inside of itself the cause for itself. It has to have something outside of itself mm-hmm. to cause it. And if everything was caused by something else, it will go back once again an in infinite regress, and that's impossible. So there has to be something that itself is uncaused, something internal, something infinite. And that will be, you know, so when you get to the, the, the final uh, premise that he has, it's really a definition of God, something that's yeah. eternal, something that's infinite, something that's outside of matter, and that will be God. And then the third one, I'm trying to do this off the top of my, oh, the third one was the argument from uh, contingency. Okay. So everything in the universe is contingent upon something else. You know, you're mm-hmm. contingent upon your parents. A car is contingent upon the factory that made it. You know, even a tree is contingent upon getting planted in the soil. Like there's things that brought it into existence yeah. that if they didn't happen, it wouldn't be there. And also everything that exists, you know, buildings crumble, people mm-hmm. die, mm-hmm. plants rot. Like everything is finite, basically. Yeah. And it's contingent upon something else. There's nothing eternal in the universe that we can see. Everything we can see in the physical world is finite and contingent upon something else existing. So... Given an infinite amount of time, if the universe is billions and billions of years old, eventually everything would cease to exist if it all played itself out, except for that there's one necessary being, and that necessary being causes all the other beings to exist, and that being is God. He's the only necessary being. Everything else is contingent. He's the only thing that's uncreated. And then uh, the fourth one would be, oh, the argument from degree. So this kind of gets away from the cosmological argument. So first three are called the cosmological arguments. The fourth one is the argument for a degree, and it says that 
we measure things, you know, something's bigger, like that's bigger than that, or this is truer, you know, a true statement, or this is better than that, or, you know, something's beautiful or a perfect circle versus an imperfect circle. You know, so we measure things against that there's a, it's a degree against which there's the perfect measure of it. Mm. And to prove that there's goodness and truth and beauty, the transcendentals, the, uh, to prove that there's something that is the perfect example of that thing. So truth, beauty, and goodness, there has to be something that is the pinnacle of all perfection that we measure everything else against. Cause we would know that something was good unless we had a measure of something that was all good. You know, we wouldn't know if something was holy, if this is holy or sinful, unless we knew something that was perfectly holy. So the perfect pinnacle of all perfection that everything else in the universe is measured against is God. And then the final one was the uh, the argument, the teleological argument. So teleos means ends. So it was an argument from the ends of, if you look at things in nature, using nature once again, you know, you look at things in nature, certain things are set towards a certain end. So like you plant a tulip bulb in the ground, it doesn't grow up to be a cat. It grows up to be a tulip. There's and there's things humans grow up and you know eventually go off, get a career, get married, grow old, have children, have grandchildren, and die. But they're kind of directed by society because they have a will and we have, you know, consciousness to direct ourselves. But the things that aren't conscious of themselves, like trees and lower animal species, don't really have anything to direct themselves, so they're directed by a higher power, basically that brings them to their ends, that they always end up being the same way, given the proper, you know, if a plant gets the right amount of sunlight and soil and nutrients and stuff, it will grow to be what it's meant to be. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that it's meant to be something because it isn't just an accident. Mm -hmm. There's something that directed it, that guided that towards its ends, and that something is God. And like I said, I mean, they're not, it's not absolute proof, but it really is, I think they're really put it in your mind you know even if it just you know puts a pebble in your shoe as bishop aaron says yeah. just puts a pebble in their shoe that gets them itching at it like you know they really can't get around that whole idea that there has to be something that is an uncaused cause there has to be a first cause and that's what dr peter craft he always brings up because he asks someone like how did the universe happen they say oh it just popped into existence mm. you know the big bang just happened and just popped into existence is that really defies the, the law of non-contradiction because things don't just happen. If they did, they would still just happen. So if we were standing here and a pink rabbit appeared on this table right in front of me, you wouldn't just say, oh, there's a pink rabbit and no more thought given to it. You'd look up at the ski ceiling to see if there's a hole that it fall through. Is there a magician that put it there? Is there a hole in the table that it come up through? You'd look for a reason why this rabbit is here. But just because you don't know the reason doesn't mean there isn't a reason. There's a reason for everything. So for anybody who has atheist friends and they're finding themselves in a debate, they can easily direct them to uh, Thomas's books. And oh yeah, <laughs> like I said, it doesn't it doesn't prove that it's the God of the Bible is the God of the universe. You know, it doesn't even prove that God is one. All it proves is that the universe exists because something created it. There is something outside of space and time itself, something transcendent mm. that created everything. And like I said, you know, Bishop Barron says all the time, it just puts a pebble in their shoe. Mm. And then eventually maybe they'll get around to reading, you know, uh, Peter Crave wrote the Summa of the Summa. It's kind of like a 
a breakdown of the Summa Theologica. Or uh, Dr. Edward Fassier, he writes uh, a couple of books about Thomas Aquinas. Or even G.K. Chesterton's biography, but it's less about his theology, it's more about Aquinas himself. And maybe they'll just start trying to scratch that itch that you've put in them. That, you know, because it isn't, that's the difference too, and that's what I really appreciate about Catholic view of evangelization versus, you know, my former evangelical view is the evangelical view was more of going out, you're going out hunting, you know, you're going out and you're trying to land the big, the big sale. Like you're a a salesman, a car dealership, you know, you get out there, you dangle a little bait in front of them, you reel them in, you get them close and then you go in for the kill. And if you don't get someone to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and savior on the spot, then you didn't get a sale that day. But the Catholic view of evangelization is I'm the worm on the hook. And I'm putting myself out there, you know, and if people want to talk to me, people want to ask me questions, I'm putting it out there. I'm a Catholic. I believe everything that's in the Bible. I believe everything the church teaches. Mm-hmm. When I ask me about it, we can talk about it. And I don't believe faith and reason are in conflict. I think they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Ask me a question. You know, so it's kind of like we're putting ourselves as a worm on the hook. And if someone bites, we can try to reel them in. If not, maybe they'll just come back later. You know, but we're just trying to. We're sowing the seeds, as Jesus said in the Gospels. We're out there, and we're the sower. Well, God's really the sower, but we're, the, we're helping. We're assisting. We're maybe refilling the bag with some extra seeds. Whatever we're doing, we're assisting, and we're just kind of helping, because it's the Holy Spirit. You know, St. Bernadette said, my job is to inform, not convince. And so that's what we do, is we go out there, and we tell them about the truth, beauty, and goodness of the Catholic Church. And if they want to know more, they're always welcome to come. And so I find it a much less, a lower stress version of evangelization. And it also yields more fruit because I, the other way, I never did get a sale. You know, I was, I don't know if I was just a terrible evangelist or what, but this new way that I've took a pro, this new, the Catholic approach, mm-hmm. I, it's yielded way more fruit for me personally, for people I've talked to, you know, because it isn't like I'm trying to sell them something. I'm showing them this is a life changing experience and you can have it too. You know, it doesn't cost nothing. It's free. Just come on in, have a look. And and I think that's uh, also part of the the whole idea because we aren't responsible for uh, all the conversions. It's the Holy Spirit at the end who will do. Yeah, yeah. Think of it yourself, but right. generations later, it may have yielded fruit that you would never know about. Yeah, that, it always bugged me. You know, you'd hear people say, like, I saved X amount of people. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I, it always rubbed me the wrong way, you know. I was like, you didn't, you didn't save anyone. Jesus saved them. You told them and you convinced them and you got them to sign on the dotted line, but you didn't save them. But, yeah, it's we don't, I mean, even as Catholics, we don't we don't save anyone. We, like you said, it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I know, you said the Holy Spirit is the one that does it. And really, unless... It says in the Catechism, in the last, the first fruits of conversion is the graces that the Holy Spirit gives you. So without the Holy Spirit stirring your soul, you can't even come to Jesus. You know, Jesus said nobody can say, or was it Paul, said nobody can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. I think it was St. Paul said that. So, I mean, it is the Holy Spirit, 100%, but it doesn't mean we don't have a job to do. Thomas stopped writing after he had a mystical appearance. Oh, yeah. I not, so oh, yeah, he had a few. A few. My yeah. favorite one was before he died. He was uh, was when he was getting. I mean, he died. I think he was forty years old when he died. Mm-hmm. So, 
I mean, that's still relatively young. I'm only a few years away from that myself. Yeah, he died when he was about 40, but it was in his mid-30s, and he was uh, he was in a chapel somewhere. I want to say it was in Naples. He's in the chapel, and he's praying before an icon of a crucifix. And he starts to levitate. This is the, the, the uh, sacristan witnesses. He kind of comes around the corner, and Thomas Aquinas is praying in the chapel. And Aquinas was somewhat famous. So he was like, oh, there's Thomas Aquinas, and he's kind of spying on him. And he starts to levitate in front of the crucifix. And Jesus, I don't know if the sacristan heard this or if Aquinas later told him what he said. Like, I don't know if it was just he could hear it or if the sacristan heard. But Jesus said, you've written well of me, Thomas. What would you have as your reward? And Aquinas responded, and it's, it's my favorite line, is non nisite domine, nothing but you, Lord. That was what Thomas wanted. Thomas wanted more of Jesus. Thomas wanted more of Christ. Even after years of studying about Jesus, of communing with Christ, you know, prayer, writing these beautiful hymns for Corpus Christi, even with all of that, Jesus said to him, what do you want as reward? And he said, nothing but you. That would be his reward. And I just think that's perfectly, you know, encapsulates Thomas's life. Mm-hmm. That it was 100%, 110% dedicated to Jesus Christ and the church he founded. Mm-hmm. But uh, a couple of years after that, the one you're talking about is he had another mystical experience and he had a vision. Mm-hmm. And he never did say exactly what he's seen. Mm-hmm. But after this, it was during Mass. He was saying Mass, and he had an ecstasy, they said, during you know, during the consecration. So he just kind of went into a trance. And afterwards, his like secretary, he would dictate to his secretary, he was finishing the Summa Theologica, because he only finished the first two parts, and the third part's unfinished. And his secretary wanted him to start writing again, and he said, no. He said, everything I've written is just like dry straw. So... People say, a lot of people assume that he's seen heaven itself. You know, so all the writing that he ever done about heaven, about the saints, they call him the angelic doctor because he, mm-hmm. he's the one that came up with the choirs of angels and not came out, he didn't invent it out of thin air, but I mean, he developed that, they developed the doctrine, the theology of angels and, you know, the seraphim and the cherubim and all the different choirs of angels. And so he's wrote about angels, he's wrote about saints, he's wrote about the sacraments, about heaven, about God, about Jesus. And whatever he saw mm-hmm. made everything that he'd written, all these beautiful works that he'd written up until that point, seem as just like dry straw. That's how worthless he considered it compared to the reality, mm-hmm. you know, the reality of heaven that he was, and he ended up dying. Uh, he got sick and he got better, but he died on his way to the Second Council of Lyon. The Pope called him to come to the council and he died on the way. But whatever he's seen, whatever this experience he had. And now he previously, a couple of years earlier, had an experience of talking to Jesus. (laughs) You know, like Jesus actually spoke, they had a conversation at the cross. So whatever he's seen in this other vision, top that even. Mm. And I don't know about you, but I mean, if Jesus talked to me, like physically had a vision, (laughs) that would be pretty much, you know, the pinnacle of my life. But (laughs) whatever it was he's seen, top that completely, because he can be right after that. Whatever it was he seen in his other ecstasy that he had, it made everything seem like straw. And what he was calling straw is pretty much, you know, the whole Catholic theology. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's, 
a lot of our theology and a lot of Western philosophy and Catholic philosophy is based on Aquinas. So he considered that to be straw because he's seen, this is my guess, because he never did say what he saw. He's seen God himself. You know, he, he experienced just even just a taste of the beatific vision. And it just makes everything else seem like nothing. So that's a pretty, pretty well-lived life, considering a lot of the saints we've done lately have been uh, die pretty early. Yeah, <laughs> it's making me making me feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I also think, uh, in a way, uh, they've done everything that they they were supposed to do, and then yeah. there's nothing left. And then no, the thing yeah. is, where passers by, right? We just stay here for a short time before we go to our final final. Oh yeah. Life is like a vapor, it says in the Bible. Yeah. You know, here today and gone tomorrow. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Is there anything else that people can apply or even something that people can read about uh, Thomas? Because most of these books are, I mean, they're hard to read. The way I take the uh, the Summa, if you go on to newadvent.org, mm-hmm. they have the entire Summa on newadvent.org. And you can go on there, and you can, the prima pars is the first part, and the segunda pars is the second part, and tertiary pars is the third part. But the third part's like half finished. Okay. The, the prima pars is really, that's where a lot of like questions about God and the existence of God and uh, the Holy Spirit and the nature of God and divine simplicity. He, came, he was the one that really developed the doctrine of divine simplicity. And... All these different things are all in kind of the first part. The second part is more about, I think, I don't want to get this mixed up. I think the second part is more about the sacraments mm-hmm. and then the third part. But what you do, the way I read the Summa, and I haven't, they say that anyone who said they've read all of Augustine is a liar. I think that could even said double for Aquinas. <laughs> you know, there's Thomistic scholars that haven't, I don't think, really conquered Aquinas's vast library, you know. Mm-hmm. So the way I like to approach the Summa is going to newadvent.org and kind of pick like a topic, you know, because the way it's written is he, it's a statement and he says, it said that, and it's a kind of a statement that says, I answered. So it isn't even written really like our modern day, like a textbook would be written or like the catechism. It's written for them back then in the, in the 13th century, it would have been perfectly normal. But for us, it's kind of an odd way to read something. It's like you're reading a debate. And Aquinas was famous for, you've heard of like a straw man argument, you know, where you kind of build up this kind of false characterization of your opponent and then tear him down easy. He would do like a steel man, they call it, to where he would would build the strongest possible argument against his case, and then he would take that down. So he says says that he would kind of lay out the topic, and he would say uh, objection one, then objection two, and then objection three, and then he would say, "Then, but I answer, and he would say a paragraph about that, mm-hmm. and then his answer to objection one, and he would answer each objection. You know, mm-hmm. some head scratches, like, well, that's a really good argument. Mm-hmm. And then he would answer from his argument, you know, pick pick a single topic in Summa and just kind of digest that. You know, mm-hmm. take a week or two weeks reading it, kind of going back and forth with it. The, the Kinque VA is just, one literally it's just one question can the existence of god be proven and it's in the prima pars and i think it's either the second or third question and it's like four pages long of just you know objection one objection two objection and then i answer that and you could just read that one single question can the existence of god be proven over and over and over again 
and you discover new things every time you read it. So I wouldn't approach the Summa as like a textbook or as like any kind of book that you're going to just read the whole thing front to, front to back. Yeah. It really is something that, you know, you could take three years and read through it and study it, and you'd just kind of crack the surface. So there's that. Uh, I love G.K. Chesterton's biography of St. Thomas Aquinas. It kind of gives you insight into uh, his mind, kind of his state of mind, kind of his background. So uh, that was really good. I thought that was really good. And then, like I said, Dr. Peter Crafe wrote the Summa of the Summa. So it's kind of like a, uh, I don't want to say Cliff Notes version, because it it's very well done. So it's kind of a more simplified version than the Summa itself. It's more in you know, today's language, basically. And it's Dr. Peter Crave's kind of guiding you through the Summa. He's a professor of uh, philosophy at Boston College. So those, uh, I would definitely recommend those. And then uh, there was an encyclical by Pope Leo XIII, Eterni Patris, and it kind of established Thomas's philosophy as the official philosophy of the church. You know, it was written in the 1800s, and uh, I would definitely recommend reading through that. You know, give it to that in one night. It isn't that long. I think it's like 30 paragraphs. So those would be my recommended reading materials. Since Thomas was an Aquinas, if this inspires anybody, uh, we have um, there are various Dominicans all over the world, so you can, mm-hmm. you can consider Dominicans um, for your vocation. If you want, you can attend their retreats. And looking at this man's life, you can tell you can be a preacher, you can be a philosopher, you can write, you can go to places. And you can also be a uh, a third order Dominican, a lay Dominican. Yeah. So that's something I've been kind of discerning myself. So, uh, you know, to be a lay Dominican is you, you meet mm-hmm. uh, monthly or quarterly, depends on, I think it's monthly, depends on the chapter. And uh, it's, that's their, their charism, like I said, is to study and to preach. So and pre- that preaching doesn't mean a lay Dominican isn't going to get up on Sunday Mass and preach yeah. a homily, you know. <laughs> but even like what we're doing is technically preaching. You know, we're, we're spreading the gospel. We're sharing the truth of the faith. So... Just talking to your kids when you're eating breakfast, that can be a form of preaching if you're kind of sharing with them something about the faith. So, And that's the thing, too, Thomas said, that study for itself, just to gain knowledge, can be a form of gluttony, you know, intellectual gluttony. And uh, I was guilty of that for most of my life. I would study things, and I really had no desire to share what I learned. I just liked learning things after reading Thomas and studying about him and learning that you really to study something, to learn a truth about God. And then you're obliged to share that truth with others. You're not studying for your own purpose and your own benefit. You're studying to further the mission of the church and the mission of the church is to evangelize. You know, I said that over and over again, Paul VI said the church exists in order to evangelize. So yeah, I mean, if you really are inspired by Aquinas and you like the Dominican charism of uh, the Dominican order, the order of preachers are called the OP, that's what you see after a priest's name, OP, order of preachers, definitely look up, uh, you know, look into St. Dominic Guzman, too, the founder of the Dominicans. He was really, he was pretty good. Very inspiring. And uh, Yeah, St. Dominic. Yeah, because, I mean, today, I guess, what would be the biggest religious orders today, I guess it would be Franciscans, Dominicans, uh, Jesuits. Yeah. I guess you see, do you see a lot of Augustinians around anymore? I don't think so. Or Benedictines. 
know, they've kind of fit, not faded away, but in America, you don't see many of them. Mostly it's Franciscans, Dominicans, Carmelites too. But every, every religious order has a different charism. And the Dominican charism of studying and preaching really appeals to me. And it appeals to a lot of people, obviously, because they've got a very big lay order. And so you can join that, join the lay Dominicans. So next week, we're going to be talking about uh, the steps to discern your vocation. Now, if you notice, this month has all been about vocations. Last week, we talked about the mistakes people make uh, while discerning their vocations. And uh, Tim was talking about that. So next week, we've got uh, how you discern your vocation. And hopefully, if you've enjoyed this podcast today, and if you've liked any of our previous podcasts, Please write to us, send us your comments, like us on whatever digital radio station you're using. And uh, don't forget to uh, share this podcast with other people, people who you think might benefit from it. So hope to see you next week. Bye-bye.